All right, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the many promises we have in the scriptures that teach us that we have not because we ask not. And Father, promises that if we abide in you and our word abides, your word abides in us, then ask what we will and shall be done unto us. Father, we bring these requests before you in prayer that those we know, those who are members of this congregation will be kept safe in, as they live in the uh, fire danger area. We pray that their homes would be kept safe and that you would watch over them. Also, we continue to pray for Jim Myers, Jim and Phyllis, and for their uh, visa situation in Ukraine and pray that that might be resolved quickly. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, help us to think uh, clearly, precisely about what we study, that we might come to understand your word precisely, clearly, that we might be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, and we are down to uh, verse 19. I touched on this last time, but I want to go back, cover a few more things uh, as we get into 19, 20, and on into the last, or on into the next section that actually begins in verse 21. As we come to this transition area going from the first major section of the epistle to the next, I just want to uh, sort of summarize, wrap up uh, what the uh, the last section has been about in terms of an outline. The first uh, 17 verses of the first chapter forms the introduction. That's not up here on the slide. And then we enter into the next major division in this epistle, and that really covers from 118 through 1136. So that's the uh, vast majority of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And the, this section focuses on explaining God's gracious gift of perfect righteousness that comes through faith alone in Christ alone. Romans is really about how do we get righteousness? How can we be righteous so that we have God's approval? How can we receive this free gift of righteousness, for it is not something we work for, not something we earn. It is that which is freely given as a gift, and we have to accept it on on God's terms, which is faith in Christ. So this entire section from 118 to 1136 deals with God's gift of perfect righteousness, and it's related to understanding the need for righteousness, which is because God himself is righteous. So the first major section within this was the section we just finished from 118 to 320, focusing on God's righteousness. Because God is righteous, he condemns all members of the human race, and this demonstrates the need for every human being to acquire God's righteousness. So Romans starts with an expression of the need. Why do we need to have righteousness? Sometimes there's a discussion that goes on in a gospel presentation of whether or not we need to understand, uh, the person needs to understand that they are a sinner. And I think that not in the sense that we are focusing on sin and, and emphasizing that as, as the issue, 
But to understand why there is a need for righteousness, we have to understand that we lack righteousness. And this is exactly how Paul sets this up. Before he talks about the gift of righteousness and how we get it, he explains why there is a need for righteousness. And that is developed in uh, chapter 1 through uh, chapter 3, verse 20. So God's righteousness, because God is perfect righteousness and he is perfect in his judgment, he cannot have a relationship with that that is anything less than his standard of righteousness. Anything, Any creature that doesn't measure up to that is unrighteous by definition. There's only two categories. So this is how he develops it. In uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the point is that God's condemnation of the human race is based on the fact that human beings have rejected God, and this leads God to delivering them over to their own desires. He says, you want to make a decision to reject me, then I will let you go with that. You know, follow that thought. Just uh, see where that takes you. And so this ends up in uh, the rest of chapter 1, focusing on the fact that when man is left to his own desires, he's going to drift in two directions. Chapter 1 focuses on the drift towards idolatry and licentiousness. That is the idea that, that there's no ultimate authority because man has done away with God as the source of absolutes, so man becomes the, his own source of absolutes and does whatever he wishes to do, and it is a, a downhill slide morally, ethically, and spiritually. In this second chapter, in the first five verses, the focus is on those who are moral. Because just because man is a sinner doesn't mean he always sins. doesn't mean that man is as bad as he can be. There are many good, wonderful things that people can do. But they just don't measure up to the standard of God. Illustration I often use is, if you commit some heinous crime, if you commit murder, how much good do you have to perform in order to balance out that murder? Well, if you go into a court of law, there's no amount of good that you can do to compensate for the sin that's been committed. And we never think of life that way. We never think of, of, uh, uh, of a judge balancing out a, a criminal violation with the fact that we spent many years not violating a law. And the violation of the law is what demands a penalty. A man has violated God's standard, and therefore that penalty must be applied, which is death. So even though uh, man is fallen, he's not going to be always follow the pattern, the degradation, the perversion of chapter 1. Sometimes he follows the pattern of the first five verses in chapter 2. But morality and an emphasis on one's own morality is just another manifestation of arrogance. In this case, it's self-righteous arrogance, thinking that that somehow through our own efforts we can measure up to God's standard. Then in chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, there's an emphasis on the universality of human failure, which will be demonstrated when God judges everyone on the basis of works. None of those who are judged at the end will be able to measure up on the basis of their own works, on their own efforts, on their own morality. That's covered in 2.6 to 16. Then there's a shift from the dealing with all of mankind, especially in terms of the Gentiles, to a focus on the Jew, because in the Jewish 
tradition, the emphasis was on the fact that since God had blessed the Jewish people, that this gave them a special standing before God. And it did, but not in a soteriological sense, not in the sense of giving them uh, justification, not in the sense of giving them righteousness. It just gave them more knowledge for which they were accountable. And so in chapter 2, verses 17 down to 3, 8, God also condemns the Jew because of his trust in religious externals and human effort rather than depending exclusively on God's grace to provide righteousness. Therefore, he concludes on the basis of several quotations from the Hebrew Scriptures. He concludes in chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, that all are under sin, both Jew and Gentile, leading to the conclusion, which is what, where I'm focusing this evening, that uh, the application of the law of Scripture is that all the world is guilty before God and that the law is not the source for justification, but the means for exposing the fact that we're all sinners, that the reason God gave the law wasn't so that we could become righteous through obedience to Torah, but to show that no one can fully, completely obey the law. Therefore, we're not qualified to be righteous in God's standard. And then we'll come to the next section, which begins in verse 21 of chapter 3, and that explains the reality or the fact of justification, what justification is. And in basic definition, justification relates to the imputation of God's righteousness that is acquired by all who believe in Jesus Christ. Justification is essentially a legal declaration from God's from the Supreme Court of God, that we are declared to be righteous. It doesn't make us righteous. It doesn't make us moral. It is a legal declaration because we possess the righteousness of Christ. And we'll get in, start to get into that this evening. So let's just look at the conclusion. 319 and 20 concludes everything we've been looking at. And so Paul expresses this in the opening sentence, now... We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped or silenced and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, in these two verses, Paul demonstrates that whatever the law says, and in, this, in these verses, the term law doesn't refer to just the first five books of Moses. It refers to the, as a term describing the entirety of, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the entire Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And this is a conclusion to what Paul has just said in the previous quotations. And as we uh, studied those quotations from 3.10 down through 3.18, I pointed out that most of them came from the Psalms, but the last quotation came from Isaiah. So you have several psalms that come out of the division in the Tanakh called the Ketuvim, the writings, and then you have a quotation from Isaiah, which is from the uh, major prophets, the Nevi'im, and so those two are talking about that you have the Ketuvim and the Nevi'im, so when he talks about the law here, he's not talking about the just the first five books of Moses, he's talking about the entire uh, canon, the entire Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. So he... He writes this 
to conclude that even the Jews who have the most revelation from God and who have been given the greatest blessing from God fail to live up to God's standard. So in a sense, it's a uh, what's, what, what is called an a fortiori argument. A fortiori is a Latin term which describes a type of logic. And this literally the term means from strength, like a fortiori, like a fortification, a position of strength. And so it's an assertion from a position of strength that if, for example, if the Jewish people had the greatest amount of revelation given to them and the greatest blessing from God, you would think that those who've been given the most by God would find it the easiest to become uh, righteous and to become accepted by God. But if those who've been blessed the most by God are still guilty of falling short of God's righteousness, then those who have not been given as much must also be guilty of falling short of God's righteous standard. And so this is uh, Paul's argument why he focuses on the Jewish people. He's not picking on them, but he is developing this argument to show that since those who have been given the most fall short of the standard of God, then that means that every human being also falls short of that standard, and so all are under condemnation from God's justice. They, we all fall short of God's, God's glory. And he emphasizes this in the first phrase. He says, now we know, and he is stating a conclusion, and he uses a Greek word oida, which indicates not coming to a process of knowing something, but it emphasizes more the arrival you, you, you've arrived at this point of knowledge and understanding. A lot of times this is a word that's used in relation to the knowledge of God because God is omniscient. He doesn't acquire knowledge. He knows all things. So when it's used of humans, it indicates something that is a knowledge that has already been arrived at. And this is emphasized also grammatically because it's in the perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense, the significance of the perfect tense grammatically is to emphasize completed action. Something has been accomplished in the past, and so now we are emphasizing the ongoing or the present results of completed or finished action in the past. So when you talk about now we know, what Paul is saying is now we have come to know, we currently know something as a result of having gone through a learning process in the past where we arrived at the point of understanding something, and so we still understand it. So the emphasis is on the present uh, reality of our knowledge. So it could be translated, now we have come to know. So that's why you have it translated as a present tense in many English translations because it's emphasizing the present results of a completed past action. So he says, now we know something. And he uses the we there as an editorial we, where he is including his readers with himself. We have come to know this conclusion because he has taken them step by step through a logical chain of argumentation to reach this conclusion. That doesn't mean that everyone who read this got it the first time or the second but they should. It, we should come to this conclusion. So he says, now we know 
And then he indicates the, the first principle. He says, whatever the law says, it says or speaks to. It's a shift in uh, verbs in the Greek from lego to uh, uh, laleo. It says to those who are under the law. When he uses the phrase law here, both in the first line, and I didn't underline it, but also in the second line, in the Greek you have the, uh, you have the article uh, that is in, with the noun. And that's important. The article in Greek, I, I, sometimes I misspeak and call it the definite article, but that's wrong whenever you're talking about Greek because in Greek there's no indefinite article. In English you have the, a definite article, the, and we also have an indefinite article, a or an. But in Greek there is no indefinite article. You either have an article or you don't. But the absence of the article or the presence of the article does not have anything to do with whether the noun is definite. In English it has to do with For example, when you speak of an apple, it could be any of a group of apples. But if you speak of the apple, you're talking about a specific apple. Whereas in Greek, if you speak of apple without without an article in front, you may still be speaking of a specific apple, but by dropping the article, you are focusing on the quality or the essence of the apple, but you're still talking about a specific apple so that it's the, the definiteness is inherent within the noun. English has something similar. If you listen to, uh, and I love to watch Masterpiece Mystery, and if you watch Masterpiece Mystery and you listen to those wonderful British accents and those wonderful British actors, they will talk about going to university or going to hospital. And many other times they will use certain nouns without an article. And it's the same thing in British English. Now, we don't have that idiom in American English, but it's definitely there in in British English, so when they say, I went to university, they're using university as a definite noun, so it doesn't have to have the article there. Same kind of idea. You see the same thing theologically in John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. God does not have an article. Jehovah's Witnesses will come along and knock on your door and tell you that 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 means since it doesn't have the article that the word was a God, one of many gods, and so Jesus is some kind of subordinate God. Problem is they, that's based on a fallacious understanding of, of Greek grammar. So this, the article is important, and when the article is there, one of about 12, diff, 12 or 13 different uh, meanings or nuances to, to, to the word are, can be indicated, one of those can be definiteness. So he's the artic presence of the article here is, is, is not just talking about law in general. It's not talking about law in principle. He's specifically speaking of Mose- the, um, not just the Mosaic law, but the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. So he says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And the, fra- the Greek phrase there that is translated under the law is, it's, again, it's an interesting phrase. It's the preposition in in the, 
in, uh, in the Greek, en, with the articular form of namas again. Now, it's an interesting because normally in Greek, if you have a, uh, an articular noun like the law, and you're going to say under the law or in the law, often it will substitute the preposition and drop the article. Now, why is that important? Well, because if you have the article there, as we do in this phrase, that means the writer is including the article for precision and to make sure you get the point that he's still talking about the same law that he spoke of in the previous clause. He's being very clear here. He doesn't want you to think that somehow he's slipping over into another nuance of the word law. He's not saying those who are under law as a principle. He's still talking about those who are specifically subject to, that's the idea here, those who are subject to the Mosaic law. Now, the Mosaic law was given to the Jewish people by God through Moses on Mount Sinai when God brought the Jews out of Egypt and delivered them from slavery. And the Mosaic law was to define the life of God's people in the land that God was going to give to them. It was comparable to a legal constitution. It has a preamble, much as we have a preamble to our constitution, and that is known as the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, or in Hebrew, the Ten Words. And in the with the Decalogue, with the Ten Commandments, you have a summary of the principles that are embedded in all of the other 603 commandments that are found in the Mosaic Law. And then on the basis of that, you have a constitution that defines the government and the operation of, uh, of the Jewish nation once they would come into the land. And so it was not given to Gentiles. And this is important because every now and then today, and you're going to hear a lot of this, in the coming in the coming. Uh, election cycle. We've already seen a little bit of this. You're going to see more of this, and I'll comment on it more and more as we go along. But you are going to hear certain uh, liberal columnists, and sometimes you'll even hear a few conservatives who just are... We live in such a secular society, unfortunately, there are too many people, and as I said the other night, too many people who are writing who don't understand Christianity, don't understand... The, the, the history and the role of Christianity in the American nation. And as a result, because they're so secular, and it's like, uh, what, four or five years ago when, when um, I went on my first trip to Israel, when we, we took a group, went with Wayne House, and Wayne had given permission to this group of, of uh, fil- film producers to... Uh, come along and go with us, and they were going to film, film us. And as we got to know them, they were all from Boston, and they were all uh, they all identified themselves as as being being liberal. And in the I think it had been the 2004 presidential election, they had come to recognize that this this whole thing called the Christian right played an important role within the election process, and they didn't know anybody who knew anybody who even heard of anybody who was an evangelical, 
and had no idea what they actually believed or what they did, and they felt like somehow people ought to be exposed to what evangelicals are and what they believe. And, of course, the end product was a hatchet job because they never, they never really understood. Uh, the, we were just so foreign to them. It's just like we were from another planet. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, when you have people writing in the New York Times or Boston Globe or whatever, Washington Post, that don't understand what, that Christians today believe, most evangelicals are far to the left of what Christians have normally believed in the history of this country. If you go back to the 1920s or the 1890s or the 1860s and see what Christians believed then, they would be considered extreme radicals by by many people in the political establishment today because they're they're so devoted to the truth and reality of their Christianity and there wasn't any influence of any liberal thought especially if you go back into the mid to early uh, 1800s and the result of that is today that you have people who uh, when they hear Christians talking about certain things that, that for example, use the phrase, and I'll talk about this some this Sunday, this Sunday not only is the anniversary of 9-11, but this Sunday is also the Sunday prior to September the 17th, which is, the, which is Constitution Day. So I'll be speaking of, of the relationship between these two events and why it's important to understand understand the Constitution. But you have various legal decisions made and statements made by the uh, Founding Fathers that this is a Christian nation. And these kind of statements today are considered uh, inflammatory. And you you think that the United States is a Christian nation. Of course, our president said it's not. Uh, but they don't understand what is meant by that. What is meant by it is either a legal term or what is meant by it in, in the history books, and that is not in a strict definition of the word Christian in terms of a biblical Christian, but that this nation was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. I think it's very important to, to emphasize that it's that it's Judeo-Christian principles. It's, in fact, most of the biblical influence upon the founding fathers came not from New Testament passages, although those are referred to uh, now and then in the literature. Uh, usually it is the Hebrew scriptures that are appealed to because they went to the uh, Mosaic law as a pattern for understanding how law was to function, and they used that as an exemplar for writing the Constitution. They weren't imitating it, but it was a pattern that was set and had been used within the English tradition of common law for, uh, for several centuries. So when today you hear, they hear people saying Christian nation, they immediately think, oh, they want to establish a theocracy. Well, most of the founding fathers were Christian to one degree or another, even if all that it was was a Judeo-Christian sense, uh, even if they weren't personally a believer in Jesus Christ. They had a generic sense, and they were influenced by this Judeo-Christian worldview. And so they... Uh, they recognized that, that in their writings that this was the foundation 
of their understanding. And as I was stating a minute ago, that most of the quotes were from the Old Testament. There was a study done by um, a professor, Dr. Lutz, at University of Houston in the political science department back in the back in the 80s, where he and some others did an in-depth analysis of a number of writing speeches. All of the things they analyzed were 2,000 words or greater. And they uh, analyzed these to determine the real thrust was to uh, try to understand which European writers had the most influence upon the thinking of the founding fathers. So what were the sources that the writers uh, during the revolutionary uh, era what uh, the founding era from, 18, from uh, 1760 to 1805, what did they uh, refer to the most? And it turns out that the source that was cited the most was the Bible. 34% of quotations came from the Bible. And the book that was quoted the most was Deuteronomy, Old Testament. So it just shows that, there were, that but today we have people within the Christian camp who are called dominionists. And these dominionists want to come along and they want to um, create a theocracy and they make up about one-tenth of one percent of all uh, evangelical Christians. And so they're really irrelevant. But this is something that we're going to hear, hear more. So we have to understand some of these things and understand what the issues are in terms of, of uh, history and in terms of Scripture. But what you find these Reconstructionists do is they make an appeal to the Mosaic law that that should be the law of the land. And the term that is used by them is theonomy, the law of God. But that, like I said, that relates to an extremely small portion of the people. God did not give the law to all of the Gentiles. That is the view of the Dominionists, that all human beings are responsible for the Mosaic law. But when you examine the Old Testament scriptures, God never holds the Gentiles accountable to anything that is specific to the Mosaic law. When God condemns the Jews in the Old Testament and warns them of coming judgment, it is because they viol- specifically violate the Ten Commandments. They violate the First Commandment through idolatry. They violate the Sabbath Commandment. And so they're going to be removed from the land for so many years to make up for the uh, sabbatical years that they violated. Uh, you look at all of the condemnations on the on the Jews, it's because they, and it, it's all traced back to specifics of the Mosaic Law. But when God condemns the Gentiles, the Babylonians and others, he condemns them for violations related to uh, more general things. Idolatry was not just condemned in the Mosaic Law. Idolatry was wrong prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law based on uh, the Noahic Covenant. And so the basis for judgment for the Gentiles was not the Mosaic Law. So the principle that Paul's making here is that the law that he's speaking of is not law in general, but the Mosaic Law, which was specifically given to the Jewish people and by not Living up to the Mosaic law, he demonstrates that the Jewish people are under condemnation for breaking and for violating the law. Now, he says, we know that whatever the law says, that is, whatever the law revealed in the Old Testament says, it says to those who are under the law, meaning the Jewish people, he says that that every mouth 
may be stopped. And this word that's translated to be stopped is the Greek word phraso, which means to be silenced. And the significance of this is that it is a, it's a, the context here focuses on the, a courtroom uh, scenario. And within this courtroom scenario, uh, someone may come before the, the bar of justice and claim that they meet the standard. They're not guilty. And they try to marshal arguments to show, I'm not really guilty. See, I have enough works. I can, I can be declared righteous. And God says that by the principle that Paul's saying here is because you violated the law, you're left defenseless, speechless. The defendant has no argument to support his claim that he is righteous. He, he looks at the standard that God has set, and he can't meet it. He has nothing to say. He is left silent. And so the first purpose is that every mouth may be silenced is probably the best translation. And all the world, notice he's moved from not just those under the law, the Jewish people, not just the Jewish people are condemned, but now he moves to all the world, Jew and Gentile, all are guilty before God. All are guilty before God or all become guilty before God. And the reason is that none are none are are righteous. Again, I remind you of Ecclesiastes seven twenty, written by Solomon in the Old Testament, saying, For there is not a righteous see there's the word Sadiq, not a righteous man on earth who doeth good and sinneth not. This is, I took this from the uh, Jewish Publication Society translation of the Tanakh from uh, 1917. Clear translation. There's no one. There's not a, the, the Hebrew Scriptures clearly state no human being is righteous before God. So if you're not righteous before God, how do you become righteous before God? Isaiah 64, 6 states this as well. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is, same word, are like filthy rags. So the best that we have is garbage in God's eyes. So the last phrase, all the world, not just Jews, but all the world, everyone is equally condemned. All might become guilty before God. And this is a phrase, a verbal phrase, with the verb genomai, which means to become something, and the noun Hupatikos, which is a judicial declaration of guilt. Notice it's a compound of the preposition hupa plus decay, which is the noun for righteousness. You're, you're, you're condemned, you're guilty because you're under righteousness. That's the development of that word. So it is a judicial term. It's a judicial declaration of guilt. Now, Guilt is one of those things that, that uh, people often get confused with. I remember the first time I taught this, probably the first year I was a pastor many, many, many years ago, and I had so many questions afterward because this congregation never heard this before. But there is a, there are different kinds of guilt. There is objective legal guilt, and that's what this is talking about. And there is what I call subjective or emotional guilt or guilt feelings. Now, here's the difference. When I was uh, first went up to Connecticut, 
having been used to Texas roads, Texas highways, and Texas speed limits, I almost went broke the first year paying fines for having broken the various speed limits, roads that in Texas would have a speed limit of about 50 or 55 would have a speed limit of 40 in Connecticut. And so, uh, and at that time, the Connecticut was, I think, the, I believe the last state in the union to bump the speed limit on the interstates back up from 55. Remember way back when we got all scared about high prices of gas had gone, golly gee, gas was a dollar a gallon. Oh, we were scared to death. We have to, we had to sacrifice. That's what Jimmy Carter said. We had to sacrifice. So we had to, uh, uh, lower the speed limit on the interstates from 70 to 55. A lot of good that did. And we also had to increase the bureaucracy by having a Department of Energy. That didn't do any good either. It just increased our indebtedness. They haven't done anything other than increase our dependence on Arab oil. So uh, all the states finally woke up when we went back to $10 and $8 a gallon gas in the, in the uh, 90s, finally woke up and raised speed limits back up to, to uh, 70, except for Connecticut. Connecticut got around to it finally in 99, a year after I moved up there. And, uh, but at first, you couldn't go over 55 on the interstate. That was, that was hard. That's, that was always hard for Texans. We still did 70 when the speed limit was 55, didn't we? You remember those days. So anyway, so after my third ticket... I was more upset about paying the fines. I didn't really care about violating the law. I didn't feel guilty. And so I'd go in to see the judge, and they'd say, well, are you guilty? I'd say, yes, I'm legally guilty. I don't feel guilty. I have no remorse whatsoever, but it's a legal issue. See, that's what this passage is talking about. You may not feel like you're unrighteous. You may not feel like you're uh, under condemnation from God. That doesn't, your feelings aren't really the issue, though. You, the reality is, have you committed any sin whatsoever in your life, whether it's a mental attitude sin of pride or a uh, verbal sin of uh, gossip or slander, or whether you've committed a, an overt sin, uh, whatever that might be, violence or uh, whatever it might be, if you commit any kind of sin, then you're guilty of violating the whole law. You break the law, you break the law, you're guilty of all you didn't measure up. And so you're guilty. It's a legal decision, and that's what this passage is talking about. It is a legal decision. Now, legal guilt is different from subjective or emotional guilt. This probably doesn't apply to anybody in this room, but I know some folks, most of them tend to be women, but I know some men who are this way too, so it's I'm not making a sexist statement, just making a general observation from my experience, that if you go into a room and you say, you did this, they're going to confess in a second, even though they didn't do it, just because they have this, this, this hypersensitivity and they just immediately feel like, well, I'm guilty, I must be. And I've known people like that. They're just ready to confess at a moment's notice because they just feel like they 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 did something. And if they do something wrong, they have such a sensitive conscience that they just feel bad. They just they they just are filled with remorse over something that they that they've done wrong. 
Now, that's as much of a sin under the right circumstances as anything else because if 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once we've confessed our sin, God forgives the sin. But if we go on dumping guilt upon ourselves and increasing that self-induced misery from guilt, what we're basically saying is, well, God didn't forgive me. I don't really believe it, and I'm not going to forgive myself. I'm still going to feel guilty. And there are a lot of people who do that. That's emotional guilt. Emotional guilt isn't what we're talking about here. We're not talking about how you feel. We're talking about an objective standard of God's righteousness that's been violated by, by man. That's what this speaks of. It is on the basis of the standard of God, all the world is declared guilty before God. They have not met the standard. They're unrighteous. Therefore, Paul comes to the conclusion in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, what's interesting here is in the English, it translates law there with a definite article. But in this, in the slide there in the green box, I've given you the transliteration of the, of the uh, Greek phrase. It's ergon namu. There's no article. This emphasizes, again, the quality of what he is talking about, the principle of the law. And in context, it goes right back to the reference to the law that he has made in the previous verse. So he's talking about something here, the deeds of the law, and he says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, that word justified is the same translation, I mean, the same word that's translated righteousness. I've often thought that for clarity's sake, maybe we ought to always translate it having to do with righteousness, not go from righteousness to justification. So we could translate it for clarity's sake. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous in his sight. It is a judicial term or a forensic term. I remember when I went to seminary, first time I ever heard uh, to my knowledge, I'd probably heard it before, but it wasn't a word I was very familiar with at that stage. And I heard forensic righteousness, and I always thought forensic, that has to do with pathology. Some, and, and, and finally, I worked out the connection. Forensic has to do with something that is, is legal, something that takes place in the courtroom. And so the term that has been used to describe r- the kind of righteousness that we need to get into heaven is forensic righteousness. It is a legal righteousness because we've been declared legally unrighteous because of sin. We have to be declared legally righteous. And how do we get that declaration? That's what Romans is all about, this gift of this declaration of righteousness. It's not a legal fiction. It is accomplished by virtue of a substitution. You, we get it on the basis of someone else's qualification. But Paul is simply drawing the conclusion here that the deeds of the law, and I, I think, too, that by shifting to the uh, word law without the article, it would include law related to Gentiles as well as the, the Mosaic law related to Jews, that no matter what kind of morality we try to generate, 
it's not enough. No matter how legally correct we try to try to be under any system of law, it's not going to be enough. That by legal obedience, by morality, by ritual, it's not going to be enough to measure up to God's standard. So he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, or literally the works of law, no flesh, no human being, will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that's, that last phrase gives us a, one of several clear statements in Scripture that indicate that the purpose of the law of Moses was not to give people a, a, a stair step to heaven where if they follow these principles, they can eventually get enough brownie points to get into heaven. But to show that under no condition can we ever really get enough brownie points because as soon as we get a plus 10, we get a minus 100 and three steps forward and 20 steps backwards, and there's no way we ever recover from the deficit, the moral and righteous deficit that we have from our own sin. And so the law's purpose wasn't to show how to become righteous, but the law's purpose was to show that we can never become righteous, that it's just impossible. If you go through the Mosaic Law and you look at all the different things that you could you could touch or you could come close to or you could do that would render you spiritually unclean. The principle there is to show how pervasive sin is. That was also demonstrated in leaven. That's why all the leaven had to be taken out of the house at the time of uh, Passover is so that uh, because le- any a little bit of leaven permeates the entire uh, lump, as, as uh, Paul says. So uh, lo- the law reveals or exposes sin. Now that helps us to understand um, the principle here. But we have another problem, and this is an up-to-date problem just to bring you into current events and trends and spasms within uh, modern Christian evangelical theology. What exactly does this term, works of law, mean? This is a phrase that occurs eight times in Paul, and it is a term that is at the center of a debate that has developed in the last 20 to 30 years, uh, a debate that focuses on things that was not even an issue when I went through seminary uh, back in the late 70s, but it's developed since then. And the idea here is, and you'll run into it, the idea here is that when Paul talks about the works of the law, he is using it in a only in a sense of of condemning uh, certain Jews who were saying that if you really wanted to receive the blessings of God, you had to become Jewish. You couldn't a Gentile could not be blessed and be saved or given righteousness unless he became Jewish. And so it, it became more of a, what they've done is they've tried to restrict the meaning of it to something that is related only to certain rituals within the law, not morality or trying to achieve righteousness from the law. 
A couple of uh, big names that are are involved in this. One is a man I've mentioned before, uh, N.T. Wright, who is a British Anglican who is quite educated and articulate and has a uh, rights uh, phenomenally and is quite uh, persuasive because of his uh, depth of knowledge and his breadth of education across many fields. And there are others who also uh, are involved in this. Another one is uh, uh, James uh, D.G. Dunn, uh, who has also written, has a couple, and, and they've both written commentaries on Romans and many, many other things. And this is a movement that some people have even called neo Calvinism, and what there I heard uh, last year as I was preparing for this study in Romans, I told you I went to the uh, Evangelical Theological Society meeting in Atlanta because I needed to hear that the theme last year was justification, and I needed to hear what some of these uh, men were teaching and what these ideas were because it has come to where it's permeating many aspects of evangelicalism. And there are people within this congregation who have friends and family who are going to some churches who used to be correct in their teaching on justification, but they have pastors who have been influenced by uh, uh, notably N.T. Wright, but others who are teaching this perversion of justification uh, by faith. And so it's important for those people to hear some of this because they need to be armed and prepared for their and uh, in, in dealing with members of their family and discussions that they're having as well. And I know that some of the folks that are involved in some of those churches are wrestling with these issues and do listen uh, as well to classes here. So uh, I, I want to try to expose some of this a little bit this week and next week as we go through this next uh, this next section. And I thought that would, what I would do to begin with tonight is go to these eight passages that where where the Apostle Paul speaks uses this phrase, the works of law, and we'll just look at them in context. The first two passage, first two verses occur in this context of Romans 3, Romans 3.20 and Romans 3.28. Romans 3.20 is a conclusion, and Romans 3.28 is also a conclusion. Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified, that is declared righteous by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. There's our phrase. That a man is justified apart from or or literally without the the works of the law. Now, if you are, have your Bible open, as you should, to Romans 3.21, Romans 3.20, which I'm speaking of, if you look at just the next verse, Romans 3.21, as Paul introduces the opening paragraph of the next section, he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. That's that same word there, apart from the law. And there it doesn't say apart from the works of the law, but what Paul means when he says apart from the law, he's just left the word works. He, throughout this, he's talking about the works of the law. He frames this whole paragraph with the use of that phrase in verse 20 and then in verse 28. And in between, he'll just talk about the law, uh, but he's, he's assuming it's the works that derive 
from the law as a basis for righteousness. So you have this paragraph as being very important for this discussion, and then in Galatians. Now let's talk a little bit about Galatians as I look at these uh, these verses in Galatians. What was the problem with with Galatia? Well, Galatia was a Roman province, and the area where Paul went on his first missionary journey was to southern Galatia. And he went to those cities, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. And then on his second missionary journey, we're told in Acts that he went back and revisited those churches before he headed off to the northwest and eventually uh, to Greece. But when he went to these cities, the first thing he would always do is he would go to the local synagogue and begin to teach that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He would go through the Old Testament, and he would go two or three weeks like that. And then eventually there would be some opposition. There would be those that would accept what he taught as as uh, true and accept Jesus as the Messiah, and there were those that didn't. And those who didn't would become quite hostile and angry with Paul, and there were some who kind of tried to blend things. They tried to come between these two views, and they said, okay, it's great to accept Jesus as Messiah, but you have to also keep the Mosaic law. You have to be circumcised, and you have to do the works of the law Otherwise, you won't fully enter into the blessings of the law. And so the term that was that developed to describe that group was a term Judaizers because they were not, they were trying to make the Gentiles become Jews in order to be saved. So in that sense, at a minimal level, uh, when the, this new perspectives on Paul people come along and say that uh, all the works of the law means is just, is, he's just dealing with that with it at that level, they're right in that that's part of it, but they want to restrict it to that, and that's where they're wrong. There's much more to it uh, than that when Paul speaks of this. So this was the problem in Galatia. So he's got a problem because there were those who were saying, you can't be justified unless you become circumcised and enter into the covenant of God that God made with Israel and become a Jew, and only then can you be blessed. Then there were others who said, not only can you not become righteous unless you're circumcised and enter into the covenant with God as a Jew, but you that also is the basis for your spiritual growth and spiritual life afterwards. So there were those who said that salvation was faith plus works, and there were those that said that sanctification or spiritual growth was faith plus works. And so you have two divisions in the book of Galatians. Uh, The first two chapters are dealing with the fact that salvation is by faith alone, no works. And then chapter 3 through 6 are dealing with the fact that sanctification or spiritual growth is also faith alone. It's in the same way that salvation is faith alone. So as Paul concludes his first argument, he comes to Galatians 2.16 and we read, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, same phrase that we have in Romans, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, No flesh shall be justified. This is one of the greatest statements in all of the New Testament on justification. And he makes it very clear that the works of the law 
following the Mosaic law in any way, shape, or form is not the means of acquiring righteousness to be declared righteous by God. Then in Galatians 3, he starts to deal with the second issue, which is has to do with uh, obedience to the Mosaic law as the means of spirituality or the means of spiritual growth. And in Galatians 3.2, he says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit? By that he means uh, he's talking about what happened at the instant of justification. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, baptized by God the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And he's saying, did, you, did that happen by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Which was it? Was it works or faith? Of course, the answer was it was faith. He says, and then in verse 5, he says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, did he do it by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? So these are contrasts. It's either faith or the works of the law. And it's very clear that in these passages he is talking about faith, but what he means by the works of the law is more than just simply saying that you had to enter into a covenant relationship with God via Judaism in order to experience either the blessing of salvation or the blessing of spiritual growth. Jesus uses the, um, refers to this in John 7.19 when he's being attacked by the Pharisees. And he says, didn't Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Pointing out that even among the Pharisees, they, they couldn't keep the law. That just made him mad, and they got more and more resentful of him. So in uh, Romans 3.20, we have the statement, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, just to kind of summarize this, we have to understand the meaning of the word works of the law, and this involves a grammatical phrase in Greek that's called a genitive construction. It is the works, go back here, works of law. Now, is this works produced by the law or works that derive from the law? The trouble with a genitive construction is that that it can have several different nuances, some of which are a little bit opposite of one another. For example, when you have a what they call a noun of action, now I know this gets real abstract. I'm going to cover it all again next time. I want to introduce it now, come back and talk about it next time because this is really important. It's going to affect at least two different phrases in the next couple of verses. When we have a, what they call a noun of action, now we usually think of a verb as being action, but there are nouns that describe uh, verbal action. Love is a noun of action. We can love someone, that's a verb, but when we talk about the love of God, the noun love is describing the action of love on God's part. Now when you talk about the love of God, that can be understood as God's love for people. The love, uh, God, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Romans chapter, uh, chapter five by the Holy Spirit. That's talking about God's love has been made manifest to us. God is the one who is the love is proceeding from. So that's what's called a subjective genitive. But in other passages, the love of God is a phrase that means the love directed toward God. So the same Greek phrase, you have to understand it within the context, 
And it can be either love from God or love to God. If it's love, if it's love from God or God's love, God is the subject performing it. If it's love to God, God's the object receiving it. And so it's, it's one or the other. Now, the really strange thing is in our world of anything can mean anything in hermeneutics today or interpretation, whatever you want it to mean, uh, there has developed a new category uh, in grammar called a plenary genitive. And you'll find uh, current scholars will say, well, there's a plenary genitive. That means that it means both. It means two opposite things at the same time. That's like saying, well, it's white and it's black at the same time. Now, that's just very extremely post postmodern. Is that two different opposite things can both be true uh, at the same time? And I'll, uh, the classic example of this, and I never can remember the guy's name, but whoever Bill Clinton's, uh, maybe one of you remember Bill Clinton's uh, uh, press secretary back in uh, about 1996 or 97 when the Monica Lewinsky thing was going on. Um, this was in August, back in January. Uh, Bill Clinton had said, "I, you know, I did not have sex with that woman," and then in August he. He said that he did. And so at a press conference, uh, he was asked, the press secretary was asked, well, which is true? And he, classic postmodern, they both are. Well, that's meaningless. But see, that's the idea here is you can make something as black and it's white. Yeah, they're both true. I mean, that's irrational. Uh, it's either one or the other, and if you try to get up with get get away with this idea that they're bo- that opposites are both true, then you, 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 in the sentence ends up meaning nothing to anybody, and so that's what's happened in in some of this uh, discussion related to the genitives. But it, it's important to understand this because it really comes to bite us when we get into the next verse and we have the phrase. Uh, but now the righteousness of God apart from, or, or, or excuse me, in verse 22, where it says, even the righteousness of God, is that righteousness from God or righteousness uh, or God's righteousness, in, I mean, righteousness from God, in other words, imputed righteousness, or is it God's righteousness expressed through judgment? See, that's the same kind of idea. And then, verse 20, then later on it says that it's through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that's another one of these funny little genitives, is it? it's literally the faith of Jesus. So is it faith in Jesus or faithfulness of Jesus? Are we saved by uh, through the faithfulness of Jesus? Are we saved by faith in Jesus? Now, we've always understood this in an objective genitive sense, and that's the correct view. But what you'll find more and more scholars saying today is that it should be translated as the faithfulness of Jesus. And this is making itself, making its way into more and more contemporary translations. So you need to be forewarned and forearmed to understand these issues. I know it gets a little technical. I mean, it, it takes people usually at least 15 or 20 times of hearing about the objective and subjective genitive before the light goes off. So if the light hasn't dawned on you, don't think that you're somehow uh, not too bright. That's not the case. It's, this is, it's not easy stuff. And uh, uh, some of us are always going to be grammatically challenged, and that's good. Your salvation and your sanctification are not dependent upon grammatical uh, insights, okay? 
So if this just goes past you, just fine, just ride along. It'll be kind of fun, and you'll, uh, you may pick up a thing or two as we go through this, but it is uh, very important today because it is becoming p- quite pronounced and quite popular. So we have to understand these issues a little more, a little more clearly. All right, let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Thank you for helping us understand that your word really is clear and really is consistent, and just that we have to make sure that we understand things in a correct manner. And uh, that just involves a little more study sometimes. So, Father, we thank you for your grace and that our salvation is not based on what we do, but based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, and that by simply trusting and believing in him, you credit us, you give us the gift of righteousness so that we are declared to be righteous in your sight on no other basis than the work of Christ not our work. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.